Let's pray. Father, as I look around and see people who have come to know Christ here or came to know Christ outside and moved into this church body, think of their testimonies of how you rescued them and how you rescued me. Oh, what an amazing mystery is this great, great grace that you have poured out on us. And you revealed it to us by your word. And I ask, Father, that as I preach this morning, that you would make your word more precious to us. And that you would answer some questions, perhaps, of someone who is here and wondering why Christians live like they live, why they talk like they talk, why they do what they do. And may it move in our hearts who already know you to be more devoted to your word and let it have a more central place in our practical, everyday lives. All of it for your glory and for our joy. We ask it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3 once again, and once again we come to this great chapter of Scripture And um, we are learning what it takes to be a faithful minister, a faithful Christian in these last days. Over the past three weeks, the Apostle Paul has laid down what I have offered to you as six instructions for faithfulness in troubled times. And by way of review, here they are. Number one, expect a general apostasy. Don't expect that everybody is going to want to hear your message and don't think that there aren't going to be people who abandon the faith, they will. Secondly, remember and be alert. Remain alert for deceivers. There are false teachers all around and why Fort Worth has become a magnet for them, I don't know, but there are many false teachers who are on the prowl. Number three, rest in a sovereign promise. And here's the promise. Jesus is still building his church. Rest in that. Everything is going as planned. It may look a little bit chaotic, but that's only because you can only see the backside of the tapestry. You can't see the glorious picture he's making on the front. And number four, follow a worthy example. That is, and this is the persistent exhortation of of Scripture, find worthy men and women who are walking with Christ. Find the best of the best of them And walk with them. Learn from them. Learn from the godliest people you can find. Number five, embrace a sobering reality. And the reality is this. Godliness will certainly bring you persecution. We'll talk about why at the end of this message. But I think there's a direct connection between the promise that we will be persecuted and the uh, the focus of this message, this text this morning. Number six, fulfill your foremost calling. Namely, to continue to minister the word. And that leads into our text for this morning. And just a reminder again, unlike the false teachers who have drifted away from their devotion to God's word, Timothy was to continue in the truths that he had learned even from childhood. It's interesting, the word there for childhood is brephos. It's sometimes used of uh, pre-born infants. Normally, however, in cases like this where uh, we're talking about Young people, this is, this is a young child 
Paul, uh, Timothy had been learning the word of God since he was a child. He was to continue learning and continue passing on these rich divine truths, the scriptures that he had always known. The word of God was his staple diet as a young boy. And it needed to remain his staple spiritual diet now that he is an adult. But some may ask, why should the word of God be the central feature? This is what what Paul is calling Timothy to. Let the word of God be the central feature of your life and ministry. That means you as an individual, you as a family, and us as a church. Why should the word of God be the central feature? Why not give central place to music or drama? Why not focus on positive thinking and fireside chats and practical hints for happy and healthy lives? Why not that? Well, in verses 16 and 17, Paul points to three characteristics of Scripture that identify it as the only wisdom worthy of holding the central place in the Christian's life and ministry. And these characteristics can be labeled as following. There are three of them. Number one, the authority of Scripture. Number two, the efficacy of Scripture. Number three, the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, if you're looking at your notes, you'll see that number one has a big space under it, and number two and three don't. That's because I've become wise enough to know that I'm never going to make it to, uh, at least not this week, to number two. I just want you to see where we're going with this. Um, But we're going to spend all of our time this morning, all of our abbreviated time, because the Lord's Supper has a place this morning, and so we're going to spend all of our time talking about this. Now, before we consider these three characteristics of the Word of God, let's stand together and read our text for this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. And here's the Word of the Lord. Paul speaking to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Well, the first characteristic of the scriptures that Paul wants to remind us of, and certainly Timothy of, is that it comes with all the warrant of God himself. When scripture speaks, and it does every time you open your Bible, When Scripture speaks, it speaks with the authority of God. We call this the authority of Scripture. Now, we should have already noticed that in verse 14, Paul mentions the Scriptures when he says this, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we know that Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him the word of God, the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, sacred writings here, the term sacred writings, is hera grammata, from which uh, we get sacred writings. This is the Old Testament scriptures. 
Uh, the tradition of the Jewish Mishnah declared that, the, that a Jewish child was to start learning the scriptures at age five. And what we learn in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is that Timothy's mother and grandmother were faithful to do this. Timothy's father was a Greek, and I presume since he's not mentioned in any spiritual capacity uh, or named at all in, in the text of Scripture that he perhaps was an unbeliever. But sacred writings is a technical term for Old Testament Scriptures. Now, if you think about that for more than two seconds, you realize that Paul is saying that the Old Testament, listen carefully, the Old Testament has the power to make one wise unto salvation. Let me say it again. The Old Testament is able or has the power to make one wise unto salvation. Beloved, behold the purpose for the Scriptures. This is the central purpose of the Scriptures, is to make sinners wise unto salvation, to exalt the glory of God and the glory of Christ in causing sinners to be prepared for salvation. Now God has given us his truth to reveal the means and the, and the master, the means and the master of salvation. And that's what he means when he says that the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. What's he saying? It reveals to us the means of salvation and it reveals to us the person, the master of salvation. And we need to be careful here. The Old Testament scriptures do not have the power to save. But they do reveal the means and master of salvation. And here it is. The means of salvation by grace through faith. The master of salvation, Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus demonstrated this. This reality that the Old Testament is able to make one wise for salvation. He demonstrated this about the Old Testament as he walked on the, the road to Emmaus with the, those two disciples when he declared these words, Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. He says this, O foolish and slow of heart to believe. In other words, you guys should have already known this. You've been reading the scriptures your whole lives. It's not impossible and in some cases, not even difficult if you have a heart to receive and believe. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, that's Old Testament, have spoken. Was it not necessary for the, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, that's Old Testament, he interpreted to them all the scripture, that's Old Testament, from all the scripture, the things concerning himself. Now, I emphasize Old Testament because you're so used to thinking about the New Testament. It might not occur to you that at this time there was no New Testament. None of it. None of it. Not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John. None of it. There was only the Old Testament. And what is Jesus saying here? Why didn't you guys get it? It is clearly written. Jesus repeatedly says to the Pharisees, Have you not read I mean, haven't you read the Bible? It was all there. And as you remember, the rebuke Jesus laid down to the Pharisees when he declared in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. 
The scriptures bear witness of me. They make you wise to salvation so that when you saw him, you should have recognized him. The point is that the Old Testament scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation in Jesus Christ if you have a heart to believe and obey it. Now, this is not how we 21st century American Christians typically think about the Old Testament. We may be tempted to think that the truths we need for salvation come to us only through the New Testament, and that would be a mistake. The Old Testament scriptures had all the wisdom necessary to prepare one for salvation. Someone will ask, how can the Old Testament make someone wise for salvation? How can it instruct us with the kind of instruction we would need to put our faith in the Messiah when we see him or in the Messiah that was promised to them? Well, the key component, all the key components of the gospel were there in the Old Testament. For example, the Old Testament teaches that the world exists because God created it. That's an important truth for our age, isn't it? And and too many Christians don't believe it. Science has convinced you that the word of God is unreliable on this point. And I would just take a moment to call you back to believing all of the word of God. If you're not going to believe Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when will your faith kick in? When does it kick in? Chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, the flood, the Tower of Babel, maybe after the Tower? When is your faith in Scripture going to kick in, if not in Genesis 1, 1? It teaches that God created man to bear his image and to show the world what he is like and to enjoy fellowship with his creator, which Adam and Eve did in the garden. It teaches us that this same man, along with his wife, decided, listen carefully, decided that his appetites were a better guide than God so that he rebelled against his maker. And the wages for that sin was death. Adam and Eve died spiritually, and everything around them, including himself, began dying physically as well. And from that day on, all humans were born with a sinful nature, born in sin. That is, born with a natural propensity to sin. Um, Think about your siblings when they were really, really, really young. How much work did it take, parents, for you to teach them to fight and disobey? Uh, None. They come by it naturally. Uh, They got their sinful propensity from me. And I got it from my daddy. And and it goes all the way back to Adam. And moms have a a role to play in that as well, but I won't mention that. (laughs) From that day on, humans were born in sin. So that now, all people face the prospect of being justly condemned before the face of the almighty judge, God himself. But God, here we get back to that last song we sang about the mystery of grace. But God, I mean, even in the garden, God in his mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made an atoning sacrifice. An animal was killed in man's place to temporarily cover, kafar in the Hebrew, to cover their sin. The Old Testament later introduces us to the priesthood by which continual sacrifices were offered as a substitution for sin. I mean, you think about the temple being this beautiful place where you go and there's singing and there's light and there's uh, just wonderful, wonderful things. I mean, even being there 
today where the Dome of the Rock sits, that, that Muslim holy place. I mean, that, that is the same place. The temple, the courts of the Lord, and just standing there is breathtaking. It's hard to imagine what it would have been with the temple standing there. And yet, there's an aspect of the temple that was really a butcher house. Constantly, I mean, every morning, every evening, they were slaughtering animals. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And yet, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. That whole system with all of the animals that were killed was merely a shadow of the reality which was to come, which is the promised Messiah. The Old Testament then reveals that one day God himself would come to earth, that he would be born of a virgin in the little town of Bethlehem. These details are specified. And that he would come to take away the sins of the world. Now, how did John the Baptist know that? He knew it from the Old Testament scriptures. And the Old Testament reveals in Isaiah 53 that Christ would be the suffering servant who would bear all our sins and the punishment that we deserve, the full wrath of God would fall upon this suffering servant, the Messiah. And it teaches that a righteous standing before God comes not by works, but by grace, through faith, as was true with Abraham, who believed and God credited it to him as what? Righteousness. There is a righteousness, you've heard me say this frequently, There is a righteousness we desperately need, don't have, and cannot earn. Where do we get it? We have to get it from outside of ourselves, and that's where Jesus comes in. You see, all the core truths of the gospel are right there in the Old Testament. Anyone who knew God's word and believed it, who loved God and trusted his promises, discovered that the Old Testament made him wise for salvation. And that salvation would come based on the merits of Jesus' righteous life and the payment of his bloody death as a substitution for us. Instead of us being slaughtered. We, We just sang about that. Slaughtered lamb. Instead of us facing the holy judgment of God, Jesus did. And like one of the lambs slaughtered at the temple, he allowed himself literally to be slaughtered, to be nailed to a cross. Now, to be sure, we know there were people in the Old Testament who, who were considered justified, redeemed. For example, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, right? Job was convinced that he had a redeemer who would one day raise him from the dead. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. David was a faithful believer in the Lord and even a prophet of God. Simeon and Anna at the temple were waiting for the consolation of Israel. They knew the Old Testament. It made them wise for salvation. They were looking forward to the coming Messiah. John the Baptist was a prophet who not only believed in the Messiah, but he was the first real evangelist, the gospel of the having come Messiah. He was here now. He was the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. And then there was the tax collector at the temple who prayed at the temple, God, be propitiated toward me, the sinner. He looked at the, at the, the slaughter that was taking place with all these animals and, and he knew 
Because of the Old Testament scriptures, he knew this was being done for me. God, have mercy on me. In case there's any doubt what that means, Jesus said, this man went home, what? Justified. This is Old Testament. Jesus hadn't died yet. He hasn't risen again yet by that point. And then there's the Ethiopian eunuch. This is certainly after the resurrection. But when he came to faith, what was he reading? Remember, he was baptized by Philip after believing, reading and believing the words of Scripture found in Isaiah 53. And Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? Gets up in his chariot. You understand what you're reading? How can I understand unless someone explain it to me? To me? And he did. And he explained that Jesus was just recently, just days ago, the fulfillment of this prophecy. And the eunuch said, then what keeps me from being baptized? He was reading Isaiah. And there are many, many, many more examples if we had time we could give. How were those people saved? Frankly, they were saved same as you and me. They were saved by faith in the promised Messiah who would one day come and deliver them from their sins and reconcile them to God. The Old Testament saints look forward to the atoning work of Messiah. We look backward to the atoning work of Messiah. But salvation is always by grace, a changed heart that God monergistically accomplishes in our lives. And then we believe. The first breath of a regenerated person is, I believe, I believe. And so they looked forward to the prospect of the coming Messiah, and they believed. We look backward to the work that's finished, and we believe. This is how all men at all time, how they came to salvation. In every case, a man or woman is justified by grace, through faith, because of Christ. Nobody gets a shortcut. And yet everybody receives it by grace. But how do we know that the scriptures have the authority to tell us that Jesus is the only way to be saved? How does it have the authority to tell us that there is only one way of salvation, as it does, as Jesus did when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through what? Me. How does it have the authority to do that? Well, it possesses the authority to make that claim because of one tremendous, and this is one of those places where I actually use the word I say I don't use, awesome. (laughs) It is one awesome reality that gives the scriptures the rightful capacity to declare that there is only one way. And everything else that it declares is true. And here is that awesome reality. You ready for it? Here it is. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. This is verse 16, right? You're wondering if we were going to get there. Verse 16, here it is. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now, we're not going to get to the rest of that this morning, or even most of what I just read there, but... All scripture, all scripture. Now, this is a different word than what was used previously. It's a different word. And the sacred writings here, we mentioned earlier, here the, the term is all scripture, uh, prosgraphe. 
not just the Old Testament, but all Scripture. Now, someone will argue, yes, but that word is used like 37 times, and the only time it's ever used uh, is when it's referring to the Old Testament. Well, that is almost true, except there are two places in the New Testament where the inspired authors use the same term. It's not just the Old Testament, but all Scripture. That includes the 39 books of the Old Testament, as well as the epistles and the writings of the New Testament that were completed up to the point of Paul writing 2 Timothy. And then a few more after that that came along, including the book of Revelation, for example. All of it is inspired by God the Holy Spirit. Now, the word inspire here is different than the way culturally, normally, we use it. Someone might say, I was inspired to write a poem. I was inspired to write a song. Now, what you mean by that is you were in a particularly uh, lucid, um, emotional frame that's conducive to writing poetry. Um, Maybe it was after a tragedy. Maybe it was after your wedding. Or maybe it was after the first date. Or maybe, who knows what it was. Something set off a quiver in your liver and you wrote... (laughs) Or somebody might say, I was inspired to create this piece of art, which so often is questionable to to begin with. But that's not what Paul means here. The word inspire is theonoustos, which occurs only here in the Bible. It's the only place in the Bible. It means God breathed. Now, some of your versions say inspired. That kind of gives the opposite sense, as if God is... (gasps) breathing in. It's not. It's him breathing out, which is why the uh, ESV says all scripture is breathed out by God. That's a better translation of that Greek word. Literally, it means God breathed out the scriptures. You'll remember from the very beginning of the Bible, the word of God or breath of God creates things and gives life. In Genesis chapter 1, God spoke. And what happened? The heavens and the earth appeared. Light appeared. And by his word, the plants and animals, with all their complex systems for life, came into being. God spoke, and it was done. And then God formed the first man, and he breathed into him the breath of life, Genesis 2, 7. And then later in the New Testament, the Gospel of John says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. And and so when Paul says all Scripture is breathed out by God, it shouldn't be any surprise to the faithful student of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. He's saying that the words of Scripture are as much a product of the breath of God as was the very creation itself. It is unlike all other breath. It's unlike any other writing. This writing came from the mouth of God, from the breath of God. The Apostle Peter affirms this when he writes in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time to exegete this passage, but let me just tell you what they're saying, what he's saying. 
What Peter's saying here is that divine truth does not come to man by the wisdom or imagination of man. It's not from his own inspiration, emotional inspiration. Now, there are many religious books that claim some authority that do come from the heart of a single man, and they are corrupt. And there's all kinds of things about them that I reviewed this week and and we don't have time to talk about today. Rather, God's men, those who wrote the scriptures, were carried away or carried along by the Holy Spirit. The word here, carried along, is interesting because the other place that we see it is in Acts chapter 27, verse 15, where that Roman ship was transporting Paul to Rome for trial. And it talks about how the ship was being carried along by the wind. In other words, the wind was filling its sails and it was pushing the, the boat forward in the direction that it needed to go. And so, likewise, inspiration can be compared to the way the wind blows, weight fills the sails of a ship and carries the boat along in the direction that it's supposed to go. And so the human authors, he's part of the process. He has a part in the process, but the power and direction are from God. In fact, the very specific words are from God. In fact, we believe not only the words, but the tense voice and mood of every verb. Uh, For example, Paul argues at one point in the book of Galatians. He says this, major point of his argument. He says, Remember, God's, God did not say seeds, but seed. I mean, that's the foundation of his argument, is whether this is a singular or plural word. And that's why theologians, evangelical conservative theologians say, we believe in the verbal, that means words, plenary. That means everything about those words was inspired by God. The human authors had a part in the process, but the power and direction and the final outcome was God's. And we need to be clear here that what God inspired was not the men. He didn't inspire the men, and not everything that they wrote was inspired. Not everything they said was inspired. But the words that they wrote when they were being moved along by the Holy Spirit were the inspired words. All Scripture is so inspired. Yes, their own unique vocabulary and personality are apparent as they wrote those words, and yet when the Holy Spirit had them put pen to paper, the words they wrote were fully, on the one hand, fully their own words, but also the very words God wanted them to write, words that God would also claim to be his own. And the illustration of this is how a musician will take an instrument and play it. That instrument has characteristics of its own that make it different than the other instrument. But the notes that come out of it are all the musician, the person who is sitting at the keys. Therefore, since this is true, as Wayne Grudem writes, To disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. To believe and obey any word of Scripture is the equivalent of believing and obeying obeying God. Beloved, this is huge for us. 
This has always been an issue in the church. We live in turbulent times, as Paul says, in these last days, which started at the birth of Christ and will end when he returns or when the church is taken. This is important. We have one authority. It is the word of God. We have one authority. It is the word of God. And beloved, you know what? Your pastors, your elder board has one authority. It is the word of God. And the limit of their authority ends where the word of God stops. We don't have the authority to say, you can marry, should marry this person, must marry this person, or you must live there, or you must move closer. The Word of God doesn't say that. Our authority ends, and the authority of those who are in authority over you, their delegated authority to you, their limited delegated authority to you, ends where Scripture ends and begins where Scripture begins. It's so important that we understand this. So the Apostle Paul was teaching us that all Scripture comes to us in the same way. It comes not from the clever imaginations of men, but from the very breath of God. Not just the Old Testament Scriptures, but the New Testament Scriptures as well. Now, let me demonstrate that for you. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul writes, The Scripture says, the Scripture says, but he keeps on writing. And as he continues to write, he quotes from two other Scriptures. The first one says, do not muzzle the ox in its threshing. And the second one is, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, how does that help us? Well, it helps us because the first quotation comes out of Deuteronomy 25, verse 4, which is Old Testament. But the second quotation comes from Luke 10, 7, which is not in the Old Testament. This is a... So, so, so Paul begins by saying, the scripture says, and then he quotes something from the New Testament. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter speaks of Paul's letters, and he says that ignorant and unstable, first of all, he says that, that sometimes Paul is hard to understand. Listen, if you've ever read, read Peter, he's hard to understand. But Peter's saying sometimes, some, Paul, Paul's an apostle, Paul's writing, and his words are true. It's hard to understand sometimes, but wicked and unprincipled men twist his words, twist the words of Scripture. Um, And so what's Peter doing here? Peter is calling Paul's writing Scripture. And Paul knew it. Paul knew he was writing Scripture. Peter knew that from time to time he was writing Scripture, I don't understand all the dynamics of that, but they understood when the others were writing Scripture. Here's something else. John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I'm going to take you to to several things. Jesus said, in the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all that I have said. That's a promise of inspiration. Listen, I don't know about um, your memory. (laughs) My memory is getting worse and worse, believe me. Um... I don't remember what I said to my wife this morning. And if you pressed me, I'd say, oh, yeah, I remember the theme. I remember a few words, um, but I'm not going to get it perfect. 
And yet these authors wrote down exactly what was said. How? In fulfillment of the promise of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all that I have said in the past to you. Secondly, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. In other words, all truth which you haven't yet heard. But they would write it in the epistles. And then the Holy Spirit will bear witness And you will bear witness. And this is inspiration for the book of Acts. And then the Holy Spirit will teach you things to come. That's inspiration for books like Revelation. And this is interesting to me because those are the four categories of the New Testament. Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation. All of them are inspired by God. And so Paul is saying, not only are the Old Testament scriptures inspired by God, but all scripture is inspired by God. And because it comes from the breath of Almighty God, it comes with supreme authority. That's why we read statements in the Bible like this. Have you not read? This is Jesus correcting the Pharisees and others. Have you not? You are mistaken. Have you not read? What's he doing? He's appealing to the authority of Scripture. Uh, do, do not go beyond what is written. That's the Apostle Paul. He's telling the church of Corinth, don't go beyond what is written. You are making judgments based on your own thinking, and it's taking you beyond the Scripture. Don't do that. You remember when Satan came to tempt Jesus? You know what he did? He misused the Scripture. Why do people misuse Scripture? Because if they use scripture to say something that's false, they can do it with some perceived authority. That's what Satan was doing. And Jesus responded, he parried back to him by quoting scripture properly. He corrected his misunderstanding of the authoritative use of scripture. Thus saith the Lord is another one. And, and, and you remember in the Old Testament, if anyone said, thus saith the Lord, and what they said didn't come true, what was, what was to happen to them? They were to be stoned to death. Why? Because they were pretending to speak for God when they weren't speaking for God. His word comes with authority. God's people are to believe and obey it. If you say to the people that God has said something when he hasn't happened, He never said it. And by the way, read the book of Jeremiah. It gets really explicit. Looks like it was written last week about prophets having dreams and then sharing their dreams and binding people's consciences with their dreams and God saying, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Perhaps the clearest statement on the authority of Scripture, on the authority of God's Word, comes to us through Jesus, who famously said in John 12, Verses 47 through 50. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. You say, well, what's the judge? Good question. He continues, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. In other words, 
The words that I give to you are the very words of God. This is the perfect illustration of the authority of Scripture because it is God's breath. It, its commands, its eternal promises come with all the authority of God himself. Therefore, all who love and obey God's word are blessed, as God said in Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is contrite in heart and humble and who trembles at my, what? My word. He takes my word seriously. You want to know why Christians live the way they do? We live in obedience to God's inspired, authoritative word. That's why we live as we do. You want to know why Paul was so sure that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted? It's because there is a clash of authority between Christ and the world. The world demands to be free from authority while God invites us to experience freedom under his gracious and sovereign authority. You want to know why you're a Protestant and not a Catholic? It's because one day, 500 years ago, a man had the courage to stand in the face of all the false teaching of his day and declare, I will not recant. My heart is held captive by what? The word of God. And then he translated God's word into the language of the people and the authority of scripture in the hearts of ordinary people transformed the western world. The word of God, beloved, must be the centerpiece of our lives and our ministry. It's why I love the fact that we are called Calvary Bible Church. It's not just the center of our name. It's the core. It's the center of who we are. Everything we know about Jesus, we get from his word. We don't worship the Bible, but we sure love it because it points us to Christ and does so authoritatively. Well, much more can be said about the authority of Scripture from this text. I think Paul wants us to get to know something of the efficacy of Scripture. So let's look at, no, we won't look at the next verse. We have to do the Lord's Supper. And uh, we, will, we will look at the sufficiency of scripture i hope at least begin looking at it and the efficacy of scripture next week and so i hope you'll be back let's pray lord now as we come to share in the lord's table i pray that you would remind us of these ancient truths that are perhaps more ancient than we had thought because they go all the way back to the beginning even even at the garden of eden you were revealing things about the coming gospel. And so we praise you, Father, that you have fulfilled all of your promises. And that's why we know you. That's why we love you. And that's why in our heart of hearts, we love your word. We love to obey your word. We love to comfort one another with your word. We love to challenge people and invite them to salvation in Christ because of your word. May it be the central place of our lives in the ministry of this church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.